I love the spring. There is uh, there's something about just the the temperature, the little breeze, the ability just to be able to go out and walk. I just I don't know. I just love I love the spring. My allergies don't love the spring, uh, but I do I do love it. So it's uh, good to have you here. Come on in, have a seat. I've just got a couple of uh, announcements that I want to run through uh, before I pray, and then we. Uh, get our service started. It is so good to have all of you here today. Uh, we are in a series of messages. Um, the series has been God's providence in perilous times, and we're now going to be in our second message from the book of Esther. So Pastor Tim will be working us through that book um, today. So I, I encourage you, Pastor Doug mentioned last week to encourage you to read through the book I'd encourage you to read through it several times, take some notes on it, uh, and learn from it. Hear how God worked in this young woman's life and in the people of Israel's lives, and how he could work in yours as well. Uh, announcement on VBS. VBS is coming back, and we you've probably seen the table out there. You've probably gotten other announcements. It is going to be the week of June 25th. 20th through the 24th. It will be an evening VBS. It will start at 5.30 p.m. Uh, through 8.15 p.m. I think they're still looking for volunteers. Sherry and her team are out, and there's a table out front. Uh, so after service, if you're interested in VBS, please go out there and speak with them. Uh, Community Blend has been going on now for the last couple of months, I take it. It's probably been a little bit longer than that. It's been a great ministry, and they're having their grand opening. Uh, their grand opening will be May the 7th, and it will be between 3 and 6 p.m. Uh, once again, there is a table outside because uh, they have their table on the other side of the door. Uh, so you can get some information, and there is a flyer there that you can grab uh, regarding the grand opening Saturday, May 7th from 3 to 6 p.m. Uh, Hope for the Hills, uh, Warren, you will see some information about that. I put that in an email announcement as well. And I think that's it. Let me just tell you a little bit about what the elders have been doing. Uh, the elders get together and we pray for you. Uh, we spend time really thinking about how we can encourage this ministry and encourage you. We look not only here in Washington, New Jersey, Warren County, but we also are looking out towards the world. And you know what's going on with the Ukraine and uh, the struggles that are there. Uh, so the elders in our meeting this week got together. We had some encouragement as well. So thank you. So to look at not only praying for them, but to also financially support. Uh, there are a couple of ministries uh, that are working right now in the Ukraine. One is Samaritan's Purse. You, most of you are familiar with their ministry, uh, worldwide ministry. They've had a huge impact. And then there's a group called Pioneers. And Pioneers is another missions organization there, church planning organization. So they have some um, sites there that they are doing to help people in that area. And we as an elder board have decided not only to support them through prayer, but also to support them financially. Uh, so if you want to join along with us, I put that out in an email. If you want to join along with helping those ministries, please feel free to. Um, you could either put an offering in the offering box or Dave um, set up a link on our uh, online giving portion. And if you just look under fund, and if you look Ukraine relief, the money will go there and we will send that to those two ministries. 
And I think that's all that I have this morning, so let me just pray for us before we begin our service. Lord, I look at this prayer list, and it is, um, it's very long, and it reminds me that there's so many people that are going through so many trials and troubles, and Father, we talk about those that are going through trials and troubles within our own community right here in the chapel. We have people in our area that are going through significant struggles in our community. Uh, and there's so many people around the world that are struggling, Lord. I pray uh, today that you would remind us that you're a great God. The psalmist in Psalm 77 was crying out to you because he was just concerned that you were not hearing him. And he wasn't sure that you had rejected him and rejected his people. And Lord, he needed to remind himself of the past work that you had done. He needed to remind himself that you are a promise keeper. And he needed to see all of that in light of the struggles that he's going through today. I pray that we would hear that same counsel in our own lives. And Father, I pray for... Uh, Louise's husband, Father, who's going through prostate cancer right now. Pray for wisdom and treatment there. Pray for Diana Kelly as she continues to battle her own cancers. And, and Gary Hoyt, Father, we had an extensive email this week. I pray for him, Lord. I pray for the wisdom for his doctors. I pray for strength for his family, Father. As, as he's been enduring this, I know his family has been enduring this as well. Comfort them and strengthen them, Father. Uh, Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for opportunities that you're giving us to minister through, uh, through Community Blend, uh, through the VBS that is coming up. Father, I pray that we would be planting seeds of gospel truth in, our li in people's lives. I pray for this service today. I pray that we would honor you and see you as majestic. I pray that we would honor your son. I pray that we'd be in wonder at the cross, at wonder at the empty tomb, at wonder at the fact that the ascended Christ is praying for us right now. So help us to worship him well. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Oh, my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul. I'll worship up.
Jesus and praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morning. Our sins that His mercy is more. What love can remember?
is a name. There is a name who reigns without contention, whose power can't be questioned or contained. With humble faith, as he rules the earth and heavens, his glory knows no measure or refrain. And it's bursting past the borderlines of space. Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our hearts. Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all. A name. There is a name that's reaching past the margins, calling sons and daughters back to him. As he saves, and as he saves, we can hear the roar of heaven as prodigals are coming home again. Oh, the triumph! Oh, the triumph! Death could not hold him down. Your great 
God, where else can we go but to you? You are in control of all things, God, everything in our lives. We thank you that you came to rule and reign with humble fame. You did not come boldly, but you came quietly. And Lord, yet your words have lasted for centuries, thousands of years. God, we look to you this morning. There are lots of other leaders and rulers in this world that we can trust in, that we can vote for, we can put our faith in, but they'll all fail. Because human beings do fail. I fail, people in this room have failed. And no leader is perfect, but there is one. There is a name. There is a name. There is a name we can trust in that we can hope in. The name is Jesus. He can save our souls, save our lives, put us on the right path, and then ultimately put us with you. So God, we thank you this morning that there is a name, there is a hope, something we can trust in. God, we thank you that we can see you throughout the Old Testament like we're going to see today. That the threads of Jesus are through everything, leading up to the cross and beyond and the resurrection leading to our lives. God, may we have ears to hear this morning what you want to speak to us. We thank you for this time of worship. We give you all the praise and the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Wow. It's good to be with you all this morning. I tried to uh, remain restrained while we were singing, so that when I got up to speak, I actually had a voice. So <laughs> Three weeks ago, I got up and I was in serious trouble. So, uh, praise God for a reminder. Um, we're going to let uh, children be dismissed for junior church at this time. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. If you don't know where that is, go to the book of Psalms, which I'm going to assume you can find. And then just go backwards, book of Job, and then you come to the book of Esther. Okay? Just so you can get there quickly. Love for you to follow along in God's word as we work through chapters 3 and 4. <clears throat> And if you're wondering why I'm going through chapters three and four, it's because Doug asked me to, okay? Uh, it's a lot of text to cover, uh, but it does tie together pretty beautifully. So, uh, so I, I, I struggled with coming up for the title for my sermon. Um, I had a lot of different ones. This one, the danger of pride and the high cost of surrender, a proud man and a sovereign God is uh, the other place I was leaning towards, but that's the one you end up with on the screen, which I think fairly well captures the themes of these two chapters. When we come to chapter, when we looked at chapter uh, two, we ended with saying that Esther has become queen of the land of Persia, and we saw Mordecai being used by God. Mordecai is her adopted father, her, actually her uncle, but becomes 
her adopted father prior to the accounts that are written here. Uh, and Mordecai is responsible for saving the life of the king, but that goes unacknowledged. Okay, that, that is stated, and then it kind of fades out for two chapters, and then it comes back in again once we get to chapter 5. So at the end of chapter 2, salvation of the king saves his life from assassination, and then he just kind of fades into the background in these two chapters. Chapter 3, the setting is at the gates of the kingdom of uh, Susa. Susa is the capital city, and the capital city has what's called a citadel. The citadel is, is, for lack of a better way to say it, it's the exalted palace of Susa. Okay, So Mordecai is in the city, outside of the city. Esther is in the exalted palace. She's in the place of prominence and in the place of influence. And I want to just, <clears throat> there goes my voice. I want to point out for you what that citadel was like by just giving you a brief description. Because it's important to understand the circumstance in which Esther suddenly finds herself She's been there for nine years, but this is the setting in which she was in, in this, in this promenade, this beautiful hall where the, 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 the riches of the king were on display. And you saw that in chapter one, verse six, it talks about the courtyard and the pillars of marble, this grand audience hall that had 36 Persian columns topped with colossal or, ornamental pillar tops called capitals the columns beneath it stood 17 meters the ceiling was 21 meters high this is in a stone structure which means that the height of the ceiling in this vast banquet room for showing off was 70 feet high okay this ceiling is 15 feet high okay so you can extrapolate almost five times okay so this was a stunning uh citadel a stunning display of power and it was meant to inspire thoughts about the king of that kingdom it was meant to demonstrate the the value and power of this place esther's been there for nine years she got there by what we would say at least there's implied compromise in the steps that are taken. Mordecai is part of that. And in these passages, you're going to find this call to, es to Esther and to Mordecai, this call to stand, to rise to an occasion that comes up before them in the context in which they live. So verse 1 of chapter 3, and I want to read down through verse 11 just to set context, and then we'll kind of work our way through this. It says, after these events, that is the saving of the king's life, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, 
but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or bow and pay honor to him, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy Mordecai, all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month of the month's Nisan, the pure or the, the, the lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, presumably the day that he would go to the king and make his request for the demise of the people of Mordecai. And the lot fell on the 12th month of the month of Adar. So I want to work through this text with you. First of all, looking at this inciting incident in verses 1 through 6. So you see this man named Haman. He is exalted to the place of prime minister. That is, he would be in the land of this beautiful country, Persia. He would be second in command. The only person above him would be uh, the king himself. All right. He is in this text called the Agagite. Okay. That's kind of a weird word. So I'm only going to say it a couple times. Okay. What it means is this. He's also associated with the group in this text called the Amalekites. Okay. And if you're familiar with Old Testament history prior to this event, you know that the Agagites and the Amalekites were arch enemies. They were the quintessential enemy or opponent to the people of God. So in this text, Esther and Mordecai stand as symbolic people, the people of God, and Haman stands as the devoted opposition to the people of God. And it becomes clear from the text that his hatred is strong and his desire to see them annihilated is unrelenting. Okay, so that's the the tension in the story is that Haman is exalted. The king commands that everyone bow to him. But one person in the crowd is unwilling to play ball. And his name is Mordecai. Mordecai in the text, verse 2, is clearly identified as a noble or a royal official. He has in the palace and in the confines of that, he has standing, he has influence, and he has status. But apparently, and the best we can say is this, since two times, if you look at verse 10 real quick, you'll see that Haman, is, the Agagite, is the enemy of the Jews. Okay, so two times in the text, <clears throat> I'm giving clear insight into who Haman is. Okay, he is all, he epitomizes all that opposes the people of God, okay? And it's for that reason that on the matter of principle, apparently, that Mordecai will not bow and give homage to a man who is devoted to the destruction of his people. It's a fascinating situation, isn't it? The king gives a command for everyone to bow down, and that's fascinating because why would the king have to command that people bow to the prime minister in a culture in which bowing was the norm? It was instinctive. It was a sign of respect in the Near Eastern world. But the king has to command people to bow to Mordecai, probably because there was a level of animus towards Mordecai that becomes very justified as you work through the rest of this text. So you see this <clears throat> animus that uh, 
that Haman has. And in verse 4, we find that Mordecai had told the people in the citadel that he was a Jew. Presumably that is the justification or the, 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 the moral reason why he is unwilling to acknowledge somebody who is devoted to the destruction of the people of God. Okay, so that, that's one through four. Verses five and six, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel and pay him honor, he was enraged. So apparently what happens is Haman struts around the palace confines in this beautiful colonnade in this exalted city, and he doesn't even, he's so full of himself that when everyone's bowing, he, he, he's just overcome by it and doesn't even see that Mordecai isn't bowing. The next time he comes through having been told that there is someone in the crowd that refuses to bow, he looks for him. And he identifies Mordecai as someone who will not bow to him. Verse 5, he wouldn't pay him honor. And Haman is, the text says, enraged. That's a fascinating response. He scorned Mordecai and he thought to himself this. I cannot be satisfied simply killing Mordecai. I want to torture him. And you're going to find that from this event to the, to, to the edict to kill the, the Jews in the, in the land of Persia, there is an 11th month period. And what Haman wants to do is hang this over Mordecai's head. And for 11 months, torture him with the thought that his insubordination is the cause of death for all in his people group. That's how out of control Haman becomes in this situation he is obsessed with pride that is devastating and uncontainable it is way out of proportion right I mean that that becomes very clear because one guy doesn't want to bow you want to kill off his entire ethnic group and the answer is that is exactly what Haman desires to do he goes for a scorched earth policy and could, he would not be satisfied to see Mordecai bow. So the request and the pressure doesn't come so that Mordecai will bow. Haman can only be satisfied with one thing. And that is not Mordecai bowing before him by force. It is Mordecai being killed along with this entire people group. And he wants him to have to think about it for 11 months. And that's the way the edict will work. And by the way, when you see that, you understand why Mordecai would not bow because Haman's response validates Mordecai's suspicion or conviction about the nature of the kind of person that this Haman is. He wields a lot of authority, but he's devastating. Verse 7, it's, it says that they cast the lots. He finds the time. This is presumably verse 7. This casting of the lots is probably a suspicion a superstitious way that Haman is finding the right time to go before the king and find favor. So he goes into his temples, they're casting lots, the pure it's called, and they find out that, okay, here's the day you should go to the king, the day in which you are likely to find favor for this horrific request that you're going to make. And that's in verse seven. It says in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure is cast. Verse eight tells us then, Haman went to the king and he said to him, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the providences of your kingdom who, and notice what he does, they keep themselves separate, 
Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's law. Therefore, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So do you kind of sense what's going on here? And, and most of what Haman's saying is at least exaggerated, if not largely untrue. Okay, because the Jews have been there for a long time, and they are sprinkled amongst the leadership in this kingdom. One happens to be his queen. Okay? And so Haman is just, he's, he's ramping things up in this scorched earth policy. He appeals to the king's pride. And notice the way that this lays out. They keep themselves separate. Their customs are different. Verse 8. It's not in your best interest to tolerate them, to have them here. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give you 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. If you remember what Doug talked about last week. The king of Persia has suffered a dramatic defeat amongst the Greeks. And so there's a sense in which this offer of wealth into the king's treasury would in some way compensate for the deep losses that he experienced. So Haman is very well thought out. The king has been humbled in a costly war. And so he makes this homage to him, this offer. That if you comply with the thought that I have, if you authorize me to carry out this edict then I'll put this money in your treasury. Now, watch what it says in verse 10, because this is the king's response to Haman. And let's say it this way very simply. The king found this very attractive. Somehow Haman had sniffed out trouble in the kingdom, and he was willing to take care of that on his own. He's second in command. The king just wants to be king. He doesn't want to get caught in all the little details. Here comes someone who has apparently my best interest in mind, which truthfully, that's not the case. Haman has his interest in mind, not the king's. But he sets up this plot to bring destruction to the people of God. And so verse 10 says, the king took off his signet ring. And by the way, the signet ring simply was a stamp of his signature. It was carte blanche, complete and total authority given to Haman, because whatever you stamped and sealed with that ring was done according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which meant that whatever edict Haman crafted would be on the face irrevocable. Okay, and that's one of the tensions that arises in this text. Whatever Haman takes that ring and applies it to with the seal makes that edict irrevocable and irreversible. Even the king himself cannot void that law. Why? Because the king was seen as deity. Okay, when homage was paid to the king, in this setting, you were paying homage to a manifestation of the God. And that God can't make a mistake, so there was this understanding that the law of the Persians could not be voided. Verse 12. And by the way, uh, the king ends saying to Haman, do to the people as you please. And it's really interesting in verse 11, there is this, there's this bravados on the part of the king, right? Because Haman says, I'll give you, I think it's 10,000 talents of silver. And it, it calculates into the realm of tonnage. And the king just kind of, I don't need your money. It's pathetic, isn't it? He's like, you can keep your money. I don't need it. It's bravados, right? 
I don't need your money and you do whatever you want, okay? And this is just, so the only, the only proud person in the, or the proud person in the room isn't just Haman, right? It's also the king in this context whose pride has been stoked by this crafty plot and the thought of protection demonstrating uh, authority over people by putting them to death. The tension of the text, verse 12. It says that on the 13th day of the first month, of the, royal, the royal secretaries were summoned. These are those that write laws, write edicts on behalf of the king. They wrote out in the script of each province. Remember, there were 120 provinces. So this letter is going to 127 different areas in the language of each people. All of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors and the various promises and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself. That is irrevocable and sealed with his own ring, authorized. Dispatches are sent by the king's couriers to all the king's providences with the order to destroy and annihilate all Jews, young, old, women, and children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. That's March 7th, just by our calendar, and it happens to be 11 months away from when this is signed. And it's sent out throughout the known world. Now, I want you to think about with me real quickly the pride of Haman. Okay? Now, I... I a proud man and a sovereign God, okay? I just want to poke away a little bit at this idea of pride because at one level, I have to look at this text and, 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 and gain some, some level of instruction about the danger of pride when it runs amok. And for this, I'm, I'm leaning on two sources, Okay, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter on pride. And then Tim Keller has some discussions that he's done over the years on this topic of pride. And C.S. Lewis defined pride as this. He said, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. Okay, ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on self. And the idea is that it is unending. All a proud person can focus on is themselves. Their job exists for their benefit. Their relationships exist for their benefit. Haman, in this context, is consumed by needing to be somebody. If you go to chapter 5 and verse 9, you'll find that, that the text says, Haman saw, after this is all done, he sees Mordecai not bowing. The text says he's happy, but when he saw Mordecai not bowing, some translations say not bowing nervously, he became furious. So he's got the edict. He's got the full authority of the king to put these people to death. But every time he sees Mordecai, it is destroying him internally. He can't abide the thought that someone like Mordecai is still alive. And he is consumed by it. It is ruthless, sleepless, and unsmiling concentration on self. I want you to be careful this morning that you don't look at the pride of Haman and assume that you're not guilty of it yourself. Pride comes in two forms. It comes in the form of superiority, which is much easier to see, right? Right? It's not always loud, but it is constantly calculating. 
It's constantly asking, am I being regarded highly? Am I being appreciated? Is my opinion being valued? Am I being affirmed? That's a, a, just this constant thought that is present. When I'm struggling with pride, I struggle to admit my failure and my mistakes. I tend to magnify the faults of others. I'm quick to, to blame all perceived shortcomings on those around me, on my kids, on my mate, on my coworker. I become abrasive in relationships. I become hypercritical. I become strongly opinionated, unable to retain friendships. That's the superiority form of pride. Pretty easy to identify and pretty easy to want to distance yourself from. But there's another form of pride called the inferiority form. It's the individual that's down on self. Hyper, self-conscious, self-absorbed, indecisive because I can't bear the thought of making a mistake and being wrong. It's interesting, isn't it? that that form of pride is probably more common, more insidious, and therefore more destructive, right? It creates a strong level of insecurity because I live afraid of being exposed as to my own weaknesses, my own struggles. So I end up burying and hiding those things which are internally destroying me, but nobody around me thinks that I'm proud. So it, 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 it has this tendency to hide. You constantly compare yourself with others and you beat yourself up. Do you notice that the similarity is that I'm constantly focused on me? It's unending self-concentration. I can't be happy for someone else's promotion because I want it badly for myself. It's a tireless self-absorption and self-focus. In our culture, we often call it low self-esteem. But it's really pride. And that's why it's so destructive. You know, if the Bible is strong on any sin, it's strong on the topic of pride. It is, it is called the root sin. It spawns all types of difficulty and struggles in our lives. But it is often excused as it isolates Tim Keller makes these observations on pride. He says, pride makes you a fool. And the book of Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, what it means to be a fool is this. I can't learn from my mistakes and I can't receive criticism from you. I'm deaf to that. I'm immune to that. Even though I may desperately need it, I am somehow unable to receive your advice. I am insulated from what I so desperately need. I can't hear your criticism and I can't hear your correction. Secondly, he makes the observation that pride makes you dangerous. Folks, I want you to think about the text in front of us. What is it that's firing Haman's hatred? You know what it is? It's pride. It's that somebody in his sphere of influence, known to people that know him, refuses to pay homage to him because he knows his true colors. And that makes Haman a dangerous person. Augustine said this, he said, pride is at the root of all sin. It fires hatred. The name of a, of a former spouse comes up and you hammer it to make sure that you look okay. It is, it is, it is fraught with the need to be better. 
if my children disappoint, if they don't excel, if they don't make me look good, I ridicule them. Self-exalting pride devastates people around me. The truth is that my anger problem is a pride problem. It is the chief sin. Anger is the above water display of pride. But when you go below to the glacier that destroys ships, the issue there is pride. We often see anger in our lives, but we don't want to say my real problem is that I am wrestling with a degree of arrogance in my life that is tending to bring devastation and destruction to those around me. And folks, I want to tell you something. To understand this truth is, according to Proverbs, in many ways, to save your life. To understand it is there, to acknowledge it, to admit to it, and to seek correction out of it is so incredibly critical. The other truth is this, and that is that pride is often hidden. That is that it's undetected in spite of being devastating. Some have called pride the carbon monoxide of sin. Can't see it. You can't smell it. But it is deadly. Sometimes we need to say to God, God, show me my pride. Make me aware of this devastating tendency that I have. That when people criticize or don't give me what I need that I tend to be explosive towards them or destructive towards them or demeaning towards them. It's often hidden and it's often unadmitted and therefore hard to detect. What's the solution for pride? This is a simple thought. The solution for pride is not religion. <laughs> it's not rule keeping. You know what rule keeping does to me? It makes me feel really good about myself. Right? Religion tends to fuel pride. That's why Jesus said there were people in, uh, in his time, the Pharisees, they walked around in flowing robes and they loved to hear the praise of people. They were addicted to it. They could not live without it. What is that? That's a self-concentration. That's a self-focus. I can't live without the applause of people. It has devastating effects. That's why the Apostle Paul says, if you want to overcome pride, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. All right, what was the mind of Christ? Self-sacrifice for the advancement and benefit of others, for the saving of others, for the good of others. And that's the, the way I overcome pride is not saying I have to try harder, I have to stop being proud. No, I need to examine the cross of Christ. I need to understand and, 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 and take in more deeply the truth of the gospel by which I am saved. Not based on my merit, not based on my rule keeping, not based on my performance. But based on the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. Now as we end this section of chapter 3 the setting is fascinating look at verse 15 it says the couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict would it was issued in the citadel in the high palace of susa and watch what happens it says the king and haman sat down to drink and the idea here is they sat down for a feast they sat down to applaud and congratulate themselves while the city of Susa was bewildered or dismayed. Fascinating, isn't it? 
this destructive pride, self-concentration, celebrating while the city struggles to comprehend what could possibly justify such a horrific edict. It's fascinating. Well, as we move through this text, it becomes very clear that the city of Susa is the place where Esther has come to live. She lives in what is called the citadel, the exalted palace. So there's the city of Susa, expansive, but there is this exalted place where people of influence live. And here's the truth. Esther had entered into that realm. She's enjoying the, the, if you will, the nice life and all the accoutrements of being in the palace. But here's the truth. The palace can be intoxicating. Right, all of, the, all of the things that I accomplish and all the things that I accrue to myself, what I've done, that self-concentration, it can begin to be intoxicating and life-altering. And so what, what, what happens in this text, after this edict is signed, it is fascinating to watch the response of Haman and his costly, willing surrender and his call to Esther to join with him in this protest. So let's go to chapter 4. It says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, that is this edict that has gone out. And remember, he is a noble in Persia. He tore his clothes and put on ashcloth or sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wail, wailing loudly and bitterly. So what is that? Well, at one level, it is an emotive response to the tragic news that he has heard. And at one level, he bears responsibility for it, but is unapologetic about it. I think it's important to note that. Okay, he knows that he is at some level responsible for what's happening, but he does not apologize for taking a stand in relationship to the truth that was at stake in this setting. There's great mourning amongst the Jews, the end of chapter 3 says, weeping, wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So as this word goes out, there is this deeply public sorrow. For, for Mordecai, it was loud and audible. It was bitter. It was deep. It's fascinating to think of the book of Esther and to contrast the topic of fasting, which is clearly appealing to God, and the frequency of banquets and feasting that's present. Okay? Sometimes life isn't going to be easy. Sometimes there will be sorrow while others are rejoicing. And that's in this text. Uh, something that clearly emerges. Well, the question that comes to mind, obviously, is what is Esther going to do, Esther who lives inside the palace, when she hears that Mordecai is groveling outside of the city gates? Because he knows in his current condition, he would, he would cast a, a pall over the city. It would, be, it, it would make the city that seems perfect clearly imperfect. And so there was a law that if you were in sackcloth and ashes, you couldn't even come inside the city gate. You had to stop there, lest you would negatively affect the aura of the city, the, 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 the picture or the mirage that the city is, because it's not true. 
It's not as good as it seems. And Esther's inside, and what's she thinking? What is Mordecai? So uh, let me read this for you, so I'll, I'll rush ahead, all right? Uh, verse, verse 4, it says, When Esther's eunuchs, the, that is her attendants and the female attendants, came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress, and she sent him clothes. What is she? She's the perfect picture of the palace now. Mordecai, get over it. Here's some nice clothes. Arise to your status. Come on, we're in the palace. What's her concern? I think her concern is that the behavior of Mordecai is risky. It's clearly protesting. He's taking a stand for what's right. And it's making someone inside the palace who is by adoption her father. It's making her very uncomfortable. And when she hears about it and her attendants see Mordecai and they're like, they go running into Esther and say, why is your father groveling? It's an embarrassment to you. And so she sends clothes. Come on, Mordecai, get up. Dress yourself. Look good. Life is good. She is apparently unaware of what has happened. Verses 6 to 8, Mordecai's reply is probably stunning to Esther. It says, so Hadak, this attendant to Esther went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. So why does Mordecai mention that? I think Mordecai mentions that so that Esther knows how demented and sick this man, this opponent is, how unassuageable and how irrevocable the edict is. So Mordecai sends back to her a bold request. Verse 8. He gave Hadak a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and to explain to her. And he told her and told him to instruct her, go into the king's presence and beg for mercy. Plead with him for your people. That's bold in the ancient world. So Mordecai essentially begs Esther, gives her a bold request, expose your identity, Esther. God brought you there, but now stand. Make who you are clear, because it's clear that Mordecai has stripped off all secrecy. And as I read through this text, here's what I see. I see a man who has been working and hiding at many levels for right or wrong. I I don't know, the text doesn't tell me. But I know as I work through this text, I see a man who, who is exposing himself for the person that he is. And he is making clear, I am one of those condemned to death. And I will not stand by and be silent. The response of a reluctant queen. Hadak went back to Esther and reported what Mordecai had said. And she instructed him, say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all the people in the royal provinces. Think of that. People that live in the 127 provinces and all of the king's officials in here know something. What is it that they know? Watch how Esther says this. They know that for any man or woman, any who approaches the king in the inner court without having been summoned by the king has but one law. 
meaning there's one response on the part of the king to those that come into his palace without an invitation. And it is clearly this, that they shall be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. And then here's the kicker. She says, and Mordecai, I want you to know, think about this. This is a daughter to her dad. It's been 30 days that I had an audience with the king. And what is she saying? It is unlikely that my walking into his presence to do what you have asked me to do will go well. And what is she assuming? She is assuming that it will almost certainly have a price. And we can resonate with her, right? Because that's what we do. When we have a chance to stand, what do we do? We sit back and calculate about doing the right thing. And in that, we, we expose that we have become very comfortable in the palace. We've become very comfortable in our position in life, in our accomplishments in life. And the thought of giving that up to do the right thing is not easy. And that's why in my title, I've kind of tried to capture this idea, the high cost of compromise and surrender. See, there's a cost either way here. Mordecai could sit in silence in 11 months, everybody gone, dead. Mordecai's like, I'm not down with that. I'm going to stand for the people of God in this setting because I have an opportunity. I'm going to take my status as a royal official and I'm going to put it on the line. And then he cries out to Esther and says, Esther, I have a call for you, verse 12. He hears what she says. He knows he's asking a lot, but he is unrelenting. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Now, I want you to think about this. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house. The idea is this. You're in the exalted palace. You feel insulated. You feel safe. And you can live out the rest of your life with goodness. That's her thought that Mordecai hears in what she says. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. Esther, your true identity will one day leak out. Your secret will become public. Make it public. What's the idea? The idea is take a stand. And I want you to notice Mordecai's rationale. Look what he says to her. He says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family and your father's family will perish. It's fascinating, isn't it? What's, what's the driver behind Abraham's directive to Ezra? His, his, the driver is the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to establish a nation, and I'm going to protect that nation. Mordecai is becoming cognizant of that promise that God will protect his people, and he's giving an edict in light of that truth. And he says to Ezra, because you're in the palace, because life is good. Don't assume that when the hammer falls, that you will be immune to the consequences of it. In fact, he tells her just the opposite is true. When your hidden identity is exposed, it will go worse for you. It's a powerful appeal. It's a risky appeal. But he's a persistent friend. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice what he says to her. At the end of verse 14, he says, and who knows, but that you have come to, the, the literal translation is, that you have been brought here 
to your royal position for such a time as this. That's probably one of the most famous statements in the Bible. You know what Mordecai's thought it through. There's a threat to the people of God. Devastating. There's a promise from God. I'll protect my people. You know what we're looking for? Somebody that's willing to act in light of that promise. Somebody that's willing to say, God is faithful. This is risky. I trust him. And I am willing to do whatever it takes to be an instrument of God in my setting to glorify his name. Who knows, Ezra, if you were brought here by God, if Vashti's defiance and the beauty contest that you won was not by chance, but actually a work of God. Do you see? Esther's thinking, well, I performed very well in that, in that, in that competition. And I was attractive, self-conscious. Mordecai says, get over it. Because a dead queen is not attractive. And he calls her in that moment of great risk and high cost and high drama to be the woman of God that God had called her to be and likely that God had placed there for such a time as this. Folks, listen, it's very easy for us to get comfortable in the world we ha that we live in. But the word of God tells us that we are aliens and strangers here. That we're passing through. And as we pass through, we are to represent the people of God. In this context, Mordecai and Esther are the picture of the people of God. And we're to look at them and to learn from them as they work through these difficult circumstances and challenging times that demand great sacrifice and high levels of risk. Will they stand? Esther is focused on the details right in front of her. Mordecai's focus is on God himself. He gave you a position, Esther. He gave you success. He gave you favor for a purpose outside of yourself. You see, folks, what God wants for you is not your best life now. What he wants is for you to be a servant to his purposes, a means to the ends that he has ordained. He wants to use your life for his glory. And sometimes that will mean sacrificing some of the accoutrements of the seasons of blessings that we enjoy. He's calling us to a chance to serve. And I love the resolution of this tension in verse, six, verse 15. Esther hears this and something, and I, I, if you're like me, I remember when I was 21 years old, I was living my life like I wanted to do and what I wanted to do. And God, God broke my heart. He caused me to see that I was living in direct opposition to what he wanted. And something, I had, something changed, the penny dropped. And my heart was turned. And I thank God for that day. For Ezra, something transpires in this back and forth. She, her, 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 her reluctance to sacrifice is fading away. Does that sound familiar? Remember when the Savior went into the garden reluctant? As, as he sought his father's will and got clarity on his purpose for the saving of people, his reluctance faded away. And he stepped up to the plan and purpose of God for the saving of people like you and I.
verse 15, it says, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, and I love this. She says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, that's the city, not the palace, but all that are in the city, and fast for me. And that prayer is not mentioned in this text one time, but we know that prayer is the means to fasting throughout the Old Testament. She says to them, go to God and beg for favor. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my attendants. And here's what's fascinating. Esther has been in the palace, enjoying the palace and all the accoutrements of it. But she says to Mordecai, I'll ask my attendants to pray. And folks, that, is a, that jumped out at me. It tells me she loves the palace life. And she's reluctant to make such large sacrifice of her own life and give up all influence. But she's been having some influence in the palace. There are people there that will join her in fasting and prayer because she has been there. At some level, in spite of all of the compromise that's implied in chapters 1 and 2, something's beginning to change in her like it's beginning to change in Mordecai. We're, we're going to expose who we are. We are the people of God. In spite of what happens. She is awakening to trust. And, and you, you got to love the way this lays out. She says, when this is done, this fasting and prayer, and when you have done the same thing, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. Okay, do you see what it's saying? You, you, you may not walk into the king's presence uninvited. That is just an understood. And what does Esther do? Esther says, you know what? I'm going to walk in, but I'm not going to do it till you beg God for favor when I do. And then she makes this statement, and this is, this is surrender. This is when I'm saying, okay, God, it's your life. She says, and if I perish, I perish. Folks, I want to tell you something. The highest level of freedom and humility that you will ever experience in your life is when you come to that place where you say, God, I'll do your will no matter what it costs. That makes life so simple. I remember when God confronted me at 21 about the change that needed to come and the call to ministry and all the stuff that I didn't want. And he made it attractive. And he made what I had disposable for his glory. And there's been a struggle working that out for years, okay? All the ramifications, all the things you didn't know. For Esther's right in front of her is what she knew. This could cost me my life, and I'm very clear about that. But I'm going before the king to plead for mercy for the people of God anyhow. And if in the process I lose my life, I'm good with that. Wow. How do you hurt a person like that? How do you hurt someone who says, it's not my life? I'll freely offer it up for the purpose and plan of God. Folks, here's one thing I want to say to you. That will never happen when you're walking in pride as a Christian. It will only happen when you're walking in deepest humility before God. Esther embraces her purpose. In the palace, though reluctant, though fearful, though shaking, yet willing. 
You see, I don't assume that Ezra or that Esther walked in before the king in complete comfort. I think there was fear, there was intimidation, there was reluctance, there was shaking, there was weakness and obedience. Well, see, that kind of surrender I can live with, okay? I, I can do that. I can't, I, I can't do the bold stuff. But I can do the shaking stuff. And God takes this beautiful work of Esther, this sacrifice of Esther, and accomplishes something powerful. Folks, here's what I want you to know. God has a purpose for putting you in your life where you are today. Whatever circumstance, whatever level of exaltation he's given you, whatever level of success he's given you, whatever level of influence he's given you, he has given it to you for such a time as this. Now, you can take those gifts and that influence and use it to make yourself look better by pride, self-concentration, and cling to it. Or you can surrender it to the grander, glorious, beautiful plan and purpose of God. Which will you do? Here's just some concluding statements. Remember that the hero in this story, in our story, is God. And remember that your failure is not the final word. I think Esther got into the palace by some form of compromise. That's how I read the text. But her compromise and failure in that regard is not the final word. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is a call from, the, from Mordecai. And Esther says, I am so reluctant and willing. Folks, that's a great place to be. You know why? Because that will never incite pride and self-focus. It'll be whatever God wants, I'm willing to step forward and be his person in this circumstance. He works in spite of our weaknesses and compromise to accomplish his purpose. It's not an excuse for compromise, okay? But if it's been present in your life, which it is for all of us at times, we need to know that God is greater. And the second thought is this. Many of us experience God's blessing, favor, promotion, influence, gifting. But when an opportunity comes for me to stand, I have a tendency to prefer the comfort of the palace over the risk of doing what is right. We live in a morally cloudy and complicated world. We live in compromising times. Please be careful that you do not live to preserve your position, your influence in the palace at the expense of your convictions. And I believe that as the church of Christ, believer, child of God, I believe that pressure is coming. And I believe that the church of Christ is going to face tough choices, particularly in relationship to topics of morality and may I say gender. I think the church in our day, not later, but in our day, we'll face pressure to comply or face cost for the basic convictions that we have. I believe that's where we are. Unthinkable 20 years ago. Unthinkable. But I believe with all my heart, that's where we are. And the question that we as the church need to face is, are we willing to sacrifice what is clearly the sovereign blessing of God, the influence that you have, the voice that God has given you, the place, the position from that place. Will I stand for what's right? 
Will they take the risk? Will they sacrifice the life that I have now to have the life that God wants me to have for his glory? I just, I just think this text cries out. I think of our teenagers. You will face temptation to compromise, to retain relationships. The pursuit of sexual purity has become laughable. Not will, has become laughable in our age. And I beg of you to be careful. I beg of you to stand. I beg of you to live true to your convictions and for the glory of God. In spite of the cost. I pray that you will say, when begged by someone who loves you, if I perish, I perish. If I lose a relationship, I lose it. But I'm going to stand for what God wants. I'm going to be his son. I'm going to be his daughter with courage. What's the connection to Christ in this text? It is this. Esther is compelled by a godly uncle, father, to act selflessly. To risk the palace for the saving of relatives that she loves. You follow that? Esther is compelled by a father to risk the palace for people she loves that have merit in her mind. Jesus willingly gave all for the saving of rebels compelled by his father. Folks, do you, do you see in this text, there's a mediator that steps, steps up. Esther says, I'm in, I'm in. And in the garden of Gethsemane, my savior steps up to purchase an unattractive person morally like me and like you. Not because he, he looked at you and couldn't imagine heaven without you. Because he saw you in your desperate need and he didn't take a risk. He made a choice to stand in your place on Calvary's cross at great cost so that by his shed blood, you could be forgiven and set free. And folks, here, here's, so go back to the first part of the sermon, the discussion on pride. You know what kills pride? Not religion, not saying, hey, John Whitehead, you need to try harder. Because if John tries harder, guess who's going to get credit for John's progress? John. So religion isn't the answer to my pride, my struggle, to, my, my tendency to be like Haman. Jesus Christ and the cross is the hope for the destruction of pride in my life because he loves me as I am. He loves me apart from my modifications. He loves me apart from the alterations that I make to my life. He loves me as a sinner and stood in my place. Esther stands in the place of her people for their saving. And Jesus stood in your place for your saving. Take your pride and destroy it at the foot of the cross and then take the level of influence and, and whatever it is that God's given you, take it and put it to use for his glory until the day that he comes. Would you pray with me this morning? Well, Father, we're grateful for your word. And the words of this text, I pray they will echo through our hearts. I am available and if I perish, I perish. If there's a cost, if there's a sacrifice, I'm in. I'm willing. And Lord Jesus, we say to you this morning, thank you for your willing sacrifice. Thank you for the choice that you made so that we could be free. And Lord, when we are mindful of that, it makes us incredibly humble.
and grateful in your presence. Blessed as we sing our closing song this morning. And Lord, I do pray if there's someone here this morning who has never known your grace, has never seen you as the one who stood in their place on Calvary's cross to bear the full consequence of their sin so they could be forgiven and set free. Help them to realize that today that, that, that what they need to do is not fight pride. They need to get to the cross and be forgiven and humbled by the sacrifice of Christ and changed for his glory. We pray these blessings to flow as we sing this closing song in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.
Jesus. God, we know this morning that we can boast of things we've done. In our pride, we can strive to earn the favor that Christ has won. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. God, may this week may we die to self and become more like Christ. I think it is for this time that we can be together, spend time together, worshiping and praising you, hearing your word, Lord, learning of saints of old, learning of your mercies done through the Old Testament, Lord, pointing to Christ. This week, God, may we also point to Christ. We thank you for this time. Be with us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.